Hello and welcome to Office Hours by People Design. My name is Kevin Boodleman, uh, President of People Design, and I'm here with my partner and strategy director, Jake Himmelspach. Good afternoon. Office Hours is a time we set aside to discuss ideas we're thinking about at People Design and issues that we experience firsthand with our customers. Uh, recently, we uh, created a piece on our blog called Unbundling Education. And it's really about uh, evolving uh, business models really for education and as it kind of responds as an industry to uh, the changes that we are all experiencing. Some of them were happening prior to the pandemic, but certainly the pandemic has perhaps accelerated them. And just different ways of thinking about education and sort of what it means. So uh, first, I'll, let me just, you know, I'll, I'll chat a little bit about the article and then uh, Jake and I will probably uh, talk a little bit and then we'll take some of your questions. Uh, so the article, Unbundling Education, the idea of bundling and unbundling is a concept that has um, been resonant within our company for some time and is, is a way to think about uh, business innovation and value propositions. One of the things that our clients often experience is the idea that um, they have a kind of monolithic offer and that um, that offer usually has been predetermined by patterns, sort of historical patterns for how customers have uh, purchased these things. And um, a lot of uh, uh, organizations that have been around for a while tend to fall into that pattern and they simply just kind of follow suit and that they just assume that that's kind of the, the price for entry if you're going to play in a, in a particular marketplace. Uh, but but um, one of the things that we have noticed over the over the years is that one of the best opportunities to innovate um, is to sort of unbundle uh, some of those offers, um, which is to say, starting to analyze what is the, what are the actual sources of value from the customer standpoint, and starting to uh, define them a little bit differently. And some of the best innovation uh, innovations that we've seen in in recent years um, has been a, a result of that. So this idea of, of bundling and unbundling, I'll kind of get into a little bit uh, more, but um, let me kind of get into the article. So what we, what we started to address in the article was the idea of unbundling education. Education as, a, as, a, as an industry, like a lot of industries that we have, uh, uh, that we work within, um, are things that are, you know, an archetype that may be um, probably a hundred years old. Um, but we've seen uh, a huge change over the last several decades, as uh, you all have no doubt noticed, uh, that the, the rising cost of education has outpaced inflation dramatically, at least five times since 1985 from this uh, resource that I found. And that's created a huge you know, challenge and, and sort of imbalance between um, these institutions that purport to bring value to their customers, which is to say students and perhaps their parents. Um, and the uh, and and the, the institution itself in terms of what they're trying to offer. So there's kind of a there's kind of this inherent uh, return on investment question that um, is becoming more and more sort of obvious to to buyers out there. People like myself who have kids who are moving into the college space. And you know, as this has happened, you know, a lot of organ a lot of institute higher ed institutions are struggling to figure out ways of remaining relevant. And um, we're starting to see patterns of um, your, the, the industry starting to change, obviously. Um, and, and certainly that the, this pandemic situation is forcing change in ways that perhaps um, some institutions were not yet ready to even face. Um, there's, there is a strong argument to say that, you know, we've experienced 
um, maybe 10 years of change in 10 weeks. I think it's Scott Galloway from NYU who talks about that sort of thing. Um, I, t I tend to think that's true. I think that there's there are some of these changes were already afoot uh, prior to the pandemic, but the, it, the, the situation we find ourselves in now is putting new pressure and is forcing organizations to change perhaps and whole industries perhaps to change even more rapidly than they might have. Um, they, you know, it may bring, it's, it's bringing a new, a new dynamic, but some of these patterns were already uh, on the way. One of the critical ones in education, of course, has been online learning. Online learning uh, was a reality uh, before the pandemic, and um, it, it certainly has come to the fore uh, now as we are trying to practice social distancing and, uh, and so forth and try to remain safe. Um, but it's obviously not going to solve all problems. And I think that certainly as we move into the fall, even this year, it's clear that it's, um, it, it, it's uh, starting to bring up lots of kind of questions about the value of, of college and what, you know, so uh, even uh, parents or students sending their, their uh, undergraduates into, um, into college this fall are suddenly starting, perhaps are starting to question the value of the tuition that they're being charged if they're going to be simply doing classes online. And I think it's useful to rec recognize, you know, so if we start thinking about, again, unbundling or unpackaging um, higher education, we should examine it a little bit more carefully. So one of the things that, you know, and we've done work in the higher ed space uh, for a number of years, and it becomes pretty clear if you look at colleges in general, in the traditional sense, there's, you know, almost all colleges are kind of the, based on kind of a, an archetype of that's sort of a copy of Cambridge or Harvard or these institutions that have been around for a long time. And there's a lot of I, iconic kind of value that comes with them that just kind of is an assumption. So, you know, most, most college campuses have you know, there's, there's a campus with dorms, but there's usually a, you know, a, a very kind of uh, a fancy library and you know, there's almost always a clock tower. We've been la we've laughed about that, how there's always a clock tower. Uh, and then Ivy on some buildings, right, as in Ivy League schools. But it's, it's kind of this question of like that, that's part of what, what, what has happened. And, but that, those are the kinds of things, uh, and these things are important. I mean, I don't mean to be flippant about these, um, these institutions because they provide huge value, but trying to un unbundle the value, I think, is kind of the one of the opportunities that universities may have to face. Um, you can think about, you know, the technology players that are the ones that have really been kind of the most um, proficient in starting to unbundle these things. Certainly, if we think about how we how we uh, receive entertainment today, where um, you know uh, Netflix unbundled movies from theaters and. Amazon unbundled uh, retail shopping from physical stores and Spotify and, and their like unbundled music from ownership. Um, these are, again, the idea that you'd have to go to a store to buy something, have to go to a theater for a movie or have to own music in order to enjoy it are, are precedents that we all kind of grew up with. But there are obviously there are ways to start if you start dismantling some of the assumptions. Um, it actually might start, you might enable organizations to sort of rethink the way they add value. So the lens that we use to think about uh, higher ed, for, at least for the purposes of this article, was to think about um, ways, three ways that schools add value um, uh, that to, you know, as a way to sort of examine them separately. So one, one way is through the sort of technical skills, another is through people skills, and the third is through thinking skills. So I think, you know, technical skills, or you could, you could say certification kind of goes with that is perhaps the um, the sort of the baseline of a kind of Maslow's hierarchy in a sense for for education. Um, I think that there's, you know, 
there are uh, higher aspirations for what education is supposed to represent, of course. But on some on some level, you know, the basics of sort of earning a degree, sort of being certified in an, in an area, which leads to things like employability and earning potential, are kind of the um, kind of the some of the fundamental parts of how. Um, some, a lot of people think about um, going to school. They're thinking about like, what is the, re, the, you know, from an ROI standpoint or a return on investment standpoint, it's really this question of, you know, what's the earning potential for, you know, putting my effort into getting this degree or certification. And, you know, as, as tuition rates have risen so dramatically, that equation becomes increasingly out of balance, right? Where there's, there's certainly a lot of reporting in recent years about how um, you know, people are putting their investment into college and, you know, how, how many years do you have to work in your chosen profession to actually pay back that student loan if you didn't have that money, uh, if you weren't independently wealthy going into this process? So it's, it's really a serious question. And I think that the, the rising cost of education, plus you could, if you throw in there the fact that the world is changing so rapidly, a lot of the issues that we deal with in, in our in our firm at People Design are just helping organizations kind of navigate some of the changes that they experience through technology, globalization, that sort of thing. Um, the changes are leading to any individual starting to uh, career shift more and more often in their in their uh, adult life, um, such that I mean, and I'm sure you all have, um, have uh, read about these articles, how people uh, very often are changing their careers maybe two, three, four times, even in the course of their career. And so what that leads to is some additional training and additional certification, additional, additional uh, ways in which they can expand their earning potential by going back to school. But of course, the question begs the question of what going back to school means today. And there are alternatives that are starting to crop up, of course. I mean, so the going back to school scenario or to continue to upskill your, um, your, uh, your resume um, has uh, has been started to targeted by organizations like the University of Phoenix, which, you know, if you're in the education space, I think has gone from kind of like a punchline to being kind of a, a benchmark. Um, and what I mean by that is that it used to not be taken very seriously. And now it's increasingly online uh, delivery of uh, education is becoming more and more reality for nearly everybody. Um, or for that matter, if you think about how LinkedIn has evolved, LinkedIn is as a platform, you know, used to be, you know, primarily kind of a, a resume sharing site. And of course, it's moved into being much more. Um, now it's owned by Microsoft, of course. But among the things that they've done in recent years is having acquired Lynda.com, which is a, an online learning company. Um, what uh, LinkedIn professes to be now is to, quote, connect the world's professionals and make them more productive and successful. Um, so while they're not overtly a, a, a higher ed institution or a learning institution per se, they're clearly moving towards certifications and upskilling and basically providing technical skills. Um, so all of this is putting pressure on um, more traditional uh, higher ed organizations. There's clearly been a big move toward a lot of schools offering programs online. Uh, I, for example, teach a class uh, at uh, Northwestern, uh, but it's completely online. And so it's, it's the kind of thing where there are a lot of organizations, a lot of schools that are looking for um, ways of extending their reach in terms of their brand, their profitability, but it starts to change the whole dynamic of what it means to actually be a, attend or be a student at one of these schools if it's all remote. 
So a second area that um, we thought about is, you know, we think about the credits, if you take the hard skills and you think about the very sort of technical certification skills, that's one kind of category, but there's clearly a lot of, about going to, especially the traditional four year uh, college or university experience that is not only about that. There's so much about sort of people and networking. I mean, it's finding a cohort or a group of people with, with common interests, um, exposure to people who are not like yourself or from other walks of life, um, even kind of the serendipitous meetings as you walk to class or in the kind of the cafeteria. Um, and these are, you know, these are wonderful experiences, especially for young and maturing adults who are looking to um, uh, broaden their perspective. Um, and in fact, I mean, higher ed, uh, higher ed or institutions have really doubled down on some of these things in recent years, of course, where, you know, healthy meals and uh, sort of increasingly fancy exercise facilities and walkable courtyards and impressive architecture and even more impressive libraries have become huge draws because it's been a way as as uh, students and their parents are, are choosing schools, it becomes kind of a huge, you know, kind of way to think about um, how however impressive experience it is. Um, the, the, and, and, I, and I think, you know, and I can really even operate sort of in the article, I conveyed the fact that when I grew up in a small town, it was a small college town. In fact, it was, you know, dominated by a college. I mean, the college, there wasn't a lot of industry aside from the college. And the truth is the college was kind of this, the, it was like a community center, like all the, um, it was where all the, basically all the, the coffee shop and the concerts and, um, you know, all the, the center of uh, and, and athletics, the center of a lot of cultural life, essentially in the town. Uh, was driven by this by this by this school, and you can see how much value it adds. That as as a as a as a destination that goes way beyond its um, uh, you know sort of the the specific sort of uh, credentialing certification technical skills that a college offers. The challenge, of course, becomes if you're paying for that. You know that that's it can be an expensive thing. Those fancy courtyards and built in architecture and so forth are ways are things that are um, you're, you're you're paying a lot of money, especially if you're looking from an ROI from a more sort of pragmatic ROI standpoint. Um, you know your tuition is going to pay for that fancy athletic facility and um, and and the gym and so on. I mean this is you know sort of this, it's a little bit of a separate issue if you get into like the the money making aspect of sports themselves. Um, is a is a whole other kind of conversation, but just just the fact that your tuition is kind of contributing to these things is an is an important thing to sort of consider. And as I think about that the small college town experience, I, as I mentioned, um, it makes me wonder whether whether colleges as a means to provide additional value to its community, if you decouple the certification and technical skills part, maybe colleges could uh, and universities could actually use their facilities and open them up to the community in more sort of straightforward ways. Um, um, certainly university bookstores and places have become, you know, pretty established and, and profitable retail endeavors for, for uh, colleges and universities. And perhaps they could extend that thinking to other parts of their their library or other athletic facilities um, to sort of embrace the idea of the extent to which, what role does this institution play in the community that goes beyond uh, certification and technical skills. The third uh, lens that we sort of explored in, the, in this article was having to do with sort of critical thinking and is, you know, certainly um, it, you know, the, the idea of starting with kind of the lowest level of sort of Maslow's hierarchy of what education might be about, about certification and kind of job seeking and employability. Um, you know, the crown jewel for academics has much more to do with kind of critical thinking. And most of the reason why a lot of 
people get into uh, education in the first place. And um, certainly, you know, the idea of, you know, uh, an academic pursuit um, in, in, in a sort of intellectual uh, uh, pursuit as, as a way to, to become more enlightened and a more uh, robust and um, uh, helpful human being. Um, and, and if you think about it, it's kind of even the aims of sort of what, you know, a liberal education is intended to do in terms of connecting uh, conceptual notions to um, and, and being able to think about the ethics and um, some of the things that are truly uh, we are in need of today um, is a whole other category of, of work. And, you know, the truth is, there's uh, it can be actually quite difficult if you start thinking about the what what is what is it what does critical thinking mean to actually start um, uh, putting certifications on those in some ways it's somewhat contradictory it's one of the things I've noticed among our higher ed uh, clients is that as they try to balance their kind of head and heart by um, kind of the you know their their academic pursuits and the 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 aims of enlightenment versus the kind of more down and dirty uh, requirements of um, uh, uh, you know thinking about you know the the degree as a as a as um, just a certification of a technical skill or to think about the college as kind of a job factory because in a way that's obviously that's not what most professors you know aim to be so it, it begs the question about what what is actually needed in order to help students and people think more expansively about um, creating a more stable and just society. You know, we, you know, I'm, I'm a huge believer in education in that regard, but it's a very interesting thing to think about what is the business model there exactly when it's in the, when the convention has been encumbered by all these other elements in terms of um, certification and technical skills, or for that matter, all these social uh, and sort of people dynamics. Um, maybe there are ways in which uh, higher ed institutions could uh, expand their, um, uh, open their doors to other kinds of students who are looking for the kind of academic and intellectual pursuit who don't need the degree. I remember when I got a graduate degree, just because of my, my personal uh, situation, um, I didn't need a certification. I was interested in the ideas, you know, so I was willing to pay for the ideas. The certification didn't help me that much. Now, maybe that's unique to me, but I think that's an interesting there may be people who are interested you know you think about people who are who are willing to go to classes and just audit them uh, or a way to think about you know you know what you know a role that um, bookstores in the you know the days prior to amazon anyway might have lectures from authors and all of those kinds of things so that the opportunity perhaps maybe there's something there that's to, you know that is sort of inherent in the skill set and and value system of most higher ed institutions but it's pretty far away from um, certification per se, and is pretty far away from just networking per se, even though these ideas, of course, are not mutually exclusive. So the reason we just presented some of these ideas is to think about, you know, ways, what, what's to come. I think that um, the sad truth is I, is that I think that there are, there are, there are um, higher ed institutions that are actually going to be at risk, I think, in coming years. Um, I think that the the outsized um, tuitions that have become the industry norm 
are not sustainable or won't be sustainable for um, a lot of individuals. Um, this is not saying anything, of course, about, you know, if there's government intervention or if, you know, public universities become much more affordable or even free based on the way the political landscape might change, but uh, which is in some ways another response to all of these, all of these changes. But I think it's, it's, it's incumbent on, you know, so if you're, if you're a small or mid-sized university that's not a big brand name and doesn't, is not sitting on some huge endowment, um, some of these organizations are going to be at risk. And so, I, I, so the, the ideas that we're sort of uh, presenting here were just ways of thinking about um, reframing what a higher, higher ed institution really is and that it's not just a single thing and that the idea of unbundling some of the value that it can offer its constituents might be a way for it to kind of transform itself and think about uh, tr uh, unbundling its offering in ways that would be useful uh, to its current customer set but maybe other kind of customers in the, in the general public. Okay, so with that, uh, maybe Jake, uh, we could chat a little bit or we can start to take questions. I don't know if people sure. uh, are willing to do so, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll take it from here. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, thanks everyone for joining us. If you do have a question, uh, we've got our eyes on the Q&A section of, uh, of the call, as well as the chat panel or the chat uh, box. So if you have a question, please feel free to uh, post it up there and we'll, we'll make sure to get to it. Um, or raise your hand if you'd like to just talk, that's cool too. Um, Kevin, one of the things that I, I was thinking as I was going through your article, you know, especially with, with organizations, uh, you know, I think MSU, Michigan State University just announced that it's gonna at least start online. Um, I think Harvard uh, said the same thing. And it makes me wonder about the, does this level the, it actually reminds me of when uh, Facebook launched. And I remember a lot of companies uh, said, whoa, whoa, we've got to promote ourselves on Facebook. And now we look the same. We're a big established organization, but now we look the same as this, these little guys. And it kind of created an equal playing field. And I wondered if, you know, you take away some of these aspects of being in person or being on campus does that level the playing field for organizations like University of Phoenix um, or others, or does that create more competition for them? Well, both probably, right? Yeah. So I think, you know, so on, on one hand, um, if the University of Phoenix hadn't, you know, been, you know, been kind of a first mover in the space to adopt remote learning, adopt, you know, online techniques, um, try to forge new territory, frankly, right, in a, in a space um, that, you know, I, as I mentioned, was kind of, uh, it seemed like a laughable idea, but increasingly is becoming maybe everybody's reality. Um, right. We wouldn't even be talking about them, right? We would, you know, most schools, um, except for some of the big ones with the big names, are mostly have, mostly have, a, have a local or regional audience. I mean, most schools get, you know, probably half to 60 or 70% of their students usually from the you know 100 mile radius or or so from from a college and this is this is true you know around the country and so the university of phoenix would have gotten people from phoenix basically you know now that's not that's not true so in a way for them and for for an institution that aims to be like them in any way um yeah it's a real opportunity it's an opportunity to suddenly expand your um your student base uh, to, uh beyond beyond a specific geography it's one of the main um, hallmarks of sort of the technology innovation that we've, we that we've seen. Um, so 
you know, it, it is an opportunity. If, if, this, if an institution could decide to pursue, and maybe there are niche opportunities rather than just being a broad-based provider, maybe even going after a particular kind of degree, a particular kind of a student, you know, if you could be the best in the country of a particular avenue and have an online program, you could reach somebody um, from California to Maine uh, or even beyond. Um, um, so in a way that's, that's good news because it's an opportunity. The flip side um, is that it's also competition, right? So suddenly, um, the, you know, as I mentioned, the Northwestern class that I teach, probably my experience in been doing it for about five years, um, half the students are in the Chicago area, uh, but half are not. I've had students uh, not only all, you know, certainly on, on uh, East and West Coast, but also uh, I had a student once in Australia, you know, which so suddenly what that means is Northwestern's reach um, is suddenly in everybody's backyard. So it's suddenly also competition. So it's an opportunity for any institution to suddenly start reaching out in this way, but it's also competition. So I think that while, you know, there's no question that I think University of Phoenix is enjoying a first mover advantage. Now what's happening is that most institutions that um, had maybe either resisted or kind of been backed into it, or maybe are going into it more aggressively um, uh, are going to be in some ways returning back to kind of the uh, traditional brand thing. So suddenly like to, you know, is an online degree from Harvard going to mean more than an online degree from University of Phoenix, that sort of thing. I mean, at some point, you know, there, there are institutions that have that kind of brand recognition that they built over time, um, that, that that may also start to shape the landscape too. But so, so it's both, it's an opportunity and a risk. Yeah, it's interesting. I was thinking about that too, in terms of the comp, the competitive part and, uh, you know, just even comparing Harvard to, uh, to University of Phoenix, and I know we're just using those guys as, um, you know, I guess uh, placeholders to some yeah. degree. But you know, teaching online and creating a curriculum, a curriculum and a pedagogy that works online is very different than in person. Yeah, and so it's this interesting tension between, uh, to your point, even though Harvard it has the the brand recognition and um, you know, and the history and the prestigiousness of it all, there's probably some teachers or professors within the school that are having to teach online for the first time, which could lead to a, uh, a lower experience overall. Yep. It's interesting to think that, you know, are, does that mean that some schools are going to be caught on their heels in terms of, uh, you know, uh, some of those more prestigious schools, could they take a hit to their reputation should would that is prestige going to be replaced with um something more pragmatic with the way that teaching happens and experience is uh collected by the student it's a good i mean good question i i i think um i think that i don't know as if someone Someone, if they start teaching online, you know, if, if, if some of the classes suddenly become online and they didn't used to be online, um, it'd be easy to say where it's de the deficits exist and, and to say like, well, maybe it's le a lesser experience. I don't know if it's necessarily a lesser experience. It's a different experience for sure. I think it's, um, I think it's, you know, th there may be advantages, right? So I think that it's kind of like, if you think about, you know, is there watching a, a movie at home on from Netflix or what any other provider at this point um, 
is certainly different than going to a theater. I mean, so you, people may have enjoyed going to the theater and having the popcorn and buying the food and having the whole kind of experience and so on and going as a group. Um, it's true that that experience is not there, but like, so they kind of boil it down to just the movie part. And now of course that, you know, it begs the question of like, is that, is that kind of theater experience going to be reinvented in any way um, at home or is it? Um, it's, a, it's a question. So I bring that up as a, I, I think that what's likely to happen is that there are things that there are some advantages certainly for um, remote learning because you can reach more people. You don't necessarily have to even have to move to that town um, to, you know, in order to engage in that with that institution. Um, the, um, the asynchronous aspect um, enables uh, people who may even have have a full-time job and are learning, and are pursuing a secondary degree it used to mean essentially night school right um, or executive kind of programs um, nowadays you know it's possible you can pursue these in kind of a more flexible kind of a format I think there's no question that's that professors and students who are used to a traditional model um, you know it will feel very different and it does it does risk losing obviously the personal interaction the mentorship um just the the face-to-face -face, um interaction with professors but also you know fellow students and so um yeah something something may be lost but something may be gained um as it pertains to prestige it's a good question i think that um one of the things that i i neglected to mention in the article or even just in my quick summary there is the idea that you know i think it's mit that 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 offers nearly all of its um uh, coursework online for free, which I almost goes to the third, the critical thinking skills part of it. So essentially MIT is basically saying that there is a, um, there's a way, uh, they're, they're basically offering a lot of the, the material, um, and they're not charging for it, right? So they're basically offering all the critical thinking that you might've gotten at MIT. What they're not offering for free is essentially the certification. You know, they're not saying, you know, um, that, um, that they're endorsing that or they're somehow, you know, giving you kind of this credibility. So they're trying to, it's an interesting line they're trying to walk there where the prestige, uh, to your point, they're trying to connect the prestige with the certification, uh, which makes sense, I suppose. But it's, it's just interesting from the perspective of, um, I think that the prestige doesn't, I think that if you follow that trail, the certification starts to look more like LinkedIn and University of Phoenix than it does MIT. So yeah. it's, it's a, um, so yeah, I, I'm not sure if I have a clear answer, but it's, it's interesting to, to think about what is that, what does that actually look like? And I think this is why, this is partly why people, people are looking at the, the exchange from the traditional model where I go to for a university for four years and I'm on campus and so forth. Um, and if I'm paying a certain amount of money for that experience, if it's suddenly all online, what am I losing? Um, and is that tuition worth it? Is that prestige even worth it? Um, if you're saying that it's it, your ability to, you know, associate that school name with your resume, uh, which is essentially what MIT is saying in that regard, um, then maybe it is worth it. But it is, it does, it does, it starts to suggest that pre prestige is a different thing. Because I think you could argue, argue that MIT or Harvard or any of these, you know, sort of famous universities have that prestige, not because of the certification, it's because of the critical thinking and other things. Absolutely. We've got a couple of questions that are popping in here. So um, Jason asks the question, uh, he writes, beyond traditional e-learning courses or standalone modules, 
are there some innovative ways to deliver unbundled educational content, uh, particularly technical skills? It's a good, it's a good question. So it's funny. I just, um, we're doing work with a client that is, um, pursuing, pursuing, uh, in its term, a university <laughs> it's a, in a commercial context, but they're trying to, to try to, um, sell skills. So like the, the evolution of, uh, LMS or learning management system platforms has kind of skyrocketed. Of course, ever since the pandemic has begun, um, I think the stock prices for these kinds of software platforms has gone through the roof. Um, but one of the things that we've been exploring in this for this client is, is, um, learning modes and different ways of doing this. I think that this is, this is a, it's a bit of a brave new world. I mean, part of my, I mean, to be frank, my, my, my teaching online experience, um, a, a part of my motive was to learn what it's about and what the opportunities are and what the deficits are and how does it work and those kinds of things. And I think that the, um, you know, so, you know, are there some innovative ways? It's a good question. I think that there's, and so what I was starting to learn through this client work was, you know, there are, if there are ways in which um, smaller groups, there, there's kind of the, you know, is it completely asynchronous? Are there some things that are synchronized? Is there a one-to-one -one relationship or a one-to-many relationship or a many-to-many -many relationship? Um, is there, are, are there, are there overt um, objectives of trying to decouple um, some of the things I mentioned a moment ago around the certification path versus, let's say, the socialization path versus kind of the critical thinking path. Um, I think, you know, my, my intuition is that we may have, to, educators may have to develop a, a diff, either reset or rethink some of the vocabulary and landscape for what they, how they think about teaching formats. Um, because I think that, you know, again, the bundled expression of value through having you know, like a professor stand in the front of a class of you know 50 or 100 people and giving a lecture and assignments and reading and those kinds of things, um, I think that's you know if that's if if you start to remove that as a as a as a as an assumption, um, you may have to have different kinds of ways of evaluating. Um, how you get into that. So I think Jason's question also about technical skills, it's a good question because technical skills, I think you could also argue, increasingly gets into kind of um, more and more mentor kinds of relationships, potentially more trial and error, more experimentation. What does that look like through an online delivery? I think those are, those are really good questions because I think it's, it's hard. To, it's one thing that, you know, sometimes I think about, you know, in the work that I do there, the difference between theory and practice. Um, you know, it's one thing to talk theories and talk about kind of, again, the critical thinking skills kind of part of it. Um, it's a different thing is you move it into practice, you move it into the technical skills, you know, you need to work usually, you know, right along somebody. And this is like, you know, it becomes a question of like, what is a, what does a virtual lab look like? What is a virtual, um, gr what a group work where you're working together with people or for that minute, as I mentioned, you know, internships or mentorships where you're deliberately riding along as a sidecar on someone else who knows who has more experience than you i think those those may be avenues for technical skills but it's a good question i think it's we need a different uh, perhaps a different kind of way to evaluate how to do, how to do course design sure uh another more of a statement from bill is uh that i'd love to hear your response to the difficult part for virtual learning is how it can reproduce the campus experience where students find their tribe 
and make connections that last beyond their academic experience. I'm a faculty at KCAD, and this is our main challenge as we move online. It's a, yeah, it's an interesting, I've, and I've noticed that too as a, you know, some of the instructions that I've been getting um, in terms of like ways in which that should happen or could happen. I think, um, I personally think that there may be, um, th there may be serving two different aims. I think that it's possible to, and so like in the model that we presented in the article where there's, if you start compartmentalizing sort of um, technical certification from socialization, from uh, let's say critical thinking, um, I'm not saying they're better by themselves, but I'm just saying that that's one way to start thinking about what there are these different dynamics. Is it possible for them to exist one without the other? I don't think it is true. I think that there are, and I, I think I, I have found that through my online teaching experience where there are some students who clearly thrive on the ability to interact with one another. And they, you know, they, they interact in more than one class. They may not even be in the same city, right? But they're, they're going through the same program. And they, so they kind of interact, you know, and they say, oh, I remember you from this other class. And there's clearly some social rapport. And um, in fact, and so for, and in my, you know, certainly in my class, I try to encourage that to some degree. I try to have people post videos, you know, introduce yourself. And then I encourage, you know, a big chunk of what I do is around sort of just online discussion, which at least is on some level of, you know, kind of a, a forced interaction, if you will. Um, but by the same token, I think there are some students who don't need to have, who don't want, don't want any part of that. You know, they're there for the material. They're there for the certification. They want to get exposed to the ideas. Um, do I need to also make a bunch of friends when I do that? Um, it's an interesting question. And maybe it also has to do with, um, you know, the question of, um, you know, the age of the student, um, because it's, it's one thing to be, you know, an 18 year old kid coming out of high school and looking for, um, you know, Jake, you and I know we've, we've talked about this in the past. So it's, it's very interesting to think about one lens and I, we didn't talk about this in the article, but one of the lenses to think about like traditional, uh, higher ed, uh, institutions is kind of like a soft landing to adulthood. Um, it occurred to me along the way that it's kind of like, you know, as soon as you're, when you're a freshman in college and you've, you've embarked on that on yourself, you think about this as this huge independent streak um, because you're all by yourself in a sense. But um, of course, in many cases, your parents are helping to foot the bill. And if you get in trouble with the police, it's the campus police, not the real police. And, you know, there's, there's, you're right. kind of in this kind of, in this bubble of, of reality. Um, uh, but the, the students that are in, in my class, for example, many of them are already working adults. They have their parents, they, you know, they may or may not need that level of kind of soft landing to adulthood or for that matter, an avenue for socialization. So um, it's, it's an interesting question about, um, you know, so the idea of finding your tribe and so on. Um, is that a requirement for learning? Maybe it is. I, and I'm, I'm not trying to profess one way or the other, I think, but I think it's um, the, the health and economic situation is forcing us to think about these things differently. Absolutely. Uh, Bill has another statement, which, which uh, reminds me of a, of a question that I had for you, but he says uh, that he's learned about flipping, quote unquote, flipping the classroom uh, from K-12 teachers where lectures and demos are pre-recorded and instruction focuses more on troubleshooting and mentoring. Uh, and that, that seems to uh, work pretty well for most, but not all students, uh, some not students with organizational challenges. 
Um, what's interesting about that, or kind of what it makes me think of, and Bill, I apologize if I'm taking it in the wrong direction, but it makes me think about two things. One is um, how the industrial mindset of, has uh, influenced education historically. And what I mean by that is this notion of um, uh, what they say, I've heard the term toes and rows in terms of, you know, setting up desks and, um, and kids sitting in, there's a lecture, then you go do your work and it's like next class in, uh, one class out, next class in. Um, and the, the troubleshooting and the mentoring kind of happens on the side, uh, you know, if at all. And it's just kind of this interesting notion of moving people through. Whereas the flipping model kind of changes that dynamic. And it, it makes me think of another thought, which, uh, which popped up, Kevin, as you were talking earlier, and this idea of the personalization of education and how, you know, when you were kind of describing, uh, you know, online versus in person, and I was thinking about, you know, the, the traditional model for education is very much that the person conforms to the, the, the organization's um, complexities and their, um, their business model where, you know, I, um, you know, in traditional sense, I leave where I live to come live on your, your campus, your, your business campus to learn um, and to go to your classes and do all these things, which, which makes a lot of sense. And again, there's a lot of uh, good, good things about that. However, what we've seen is uh, across multiple industries, and I think what we're starting to really experience here in education is uh, a restructuring of the balance between higher ed and, uh, and students, because you have a lot more non, too much power maybe has been in the, uh, been given to the higher ed. Um, and, we're, and, and we're trying to kind of create a stronger balance where, um, you know, you have a lot more non-traditional students who may be uh, working full-time, may have families, uh, they may be older. Um, you also have students who are, you know, enrolled in high school and taking dual credits and things like that, where the, uh, the expansion of education is shifting. And you could almost see uh, creating curriculum around user types, not just a one-size-fits-all, and, and it's um, about levels, you know, with associates, bachelors, master's doctorate kind of a thing it may be more about your lifestyle and and the different user types and how people are engaging with education what are they trying to achieve and how do you build curriculum uh around that i think flipping the classroom starts to lend itself to that in the sense that you know there is material but ultimately that time that's spent with the student is about helping them move forward with their particular problems um which is just a, a very interesting concept and that notion that, yeah, you know, kids who maybe struggle with organizing their time or uh, I think that's what you mean there, Bill, in terms of organizational challenges um, or staying on top of those things uh, could really, really cha be challenged with that. But yeah. it starts to lean towards more personalization, which is a very interesting uh, uh, concept. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think that the, and you know, you and I have talked at, at some length, you know, Jake and our client work and so on about you and about, the whole industrial kind of mindset. I mean, I feel, I feel like the, um, 
there was a there's a there's a guy that I follow who, who I rather like who talked about how he decided somewhere along the way that he didn't want to take all of his retirement at the end of his career. So he started to you know try to work for three or four years and then take right. a year off and then take another you know work for a few more years. And part of it is again you know thinking about you know the industrial mindset that we talk about is how I think we have a mental model of an assembly line and this is true for. It's true for healthcare. It's true for you know a lot of just generally processes. We think we have this kind of mental model of assembly line. You do this, you do this, you do this, you do this, and I think the reality is that we're moving to something that's more, that is probably more organic. And I think that you know it's like you talk about toes and rows. You know the traditional model of a bunch of desks line up in rows is very much like an assembly line. And for that matter, the idea that you're going to get all of your education for the first you know, 18 to 20 years of your life and then you're done for the rest yeah. of your life is a ridiculous notion in, in this, in, you know, in the context of, the, of a changing world. And so, you know, and so obviously a lot through K through, K through 12 classes have moved from like desks have been rows to now they're in circles, <laughs> which, you know, okay, it's a good step, right? I mean, it's a step toward um, interact, interactive learning, you know, um, and that sort of thing. And I think that the, the flipped model that um, Bill was referring to, you know, is interesting because I think it's I think part of that's also, you know, happening with the the advent of the uh, the Internet in general. I mean, I think that they're we're moving toward a toward a world right where so much of education used to especially prime, you know, so early education used to be about recall, you know, memorizing stuff. And, you know, when we're in this we're in this space where we're walking around with supercomputers in our pockets that can pull up almost any fact um instantaneously it changes like what you know how important is that recall i mean it's like it's, it's a tough you know like and you could have some people who would push back on you know obviously you need to remember remember some things but um it may be more about that critical thinking or, or yeah. what's what's the rather than what's the answer what's the question yeah which begs to so the flip the flip model has to do with like what's in the classroom versus what's independent but then it begs the question of like and of course you know throwing the online component or, or remote learning kind of component it uh, changes the whole dynamic of what is what is a classroom in the first place and right. what is independent. Well, and and the challenge with that again, I mean, you know, it's you know where the pendulum may have been with schools in the past, and then maybe moving more and more towards the the student. You still have to find that balance because part of the problem with customization or personalization is how do you scale that? Jason uh, Jason writes. Um, more of a statement again, but great points. I work in the metal ed medical education. I work in medical education where our senior clinicians are shocked that they don't get the automatic respect of their users. So students and junior faculty, they get aggravated by being fact checked in real time and that their uh, users expect customization and relevance as opposed to abstract frameworks and theory. So it's, it's again, kind of, you know, um, I think there's a different expectation with students, you know, and um, I don't know if it's generational or just because of uh, they have experiences all over the place. Right. And um, it's about what are the questions? How does this apply? What does this mean? And I think there's a little less uh, of that notion of, I'm just going to take your, your word for it and your, your more abstract theories and frameworks and, leave it at that, right? There's a little bit more pressing in, which forces that, um, that customization, which is, which is. Yeah. Well, I have to, I have to believe, you know, it's, it's interesting too, because it kind of gets into like behavior theory and 
in some of these things where, you know, basically the idea that people have, um, you have to believe that someone, the more time and money they've invested in whatever certification they've earned, the more they're going to believe that they've, um, that, that it's deserving of praise and respect and all kinds of things, you know, part of that, you know, and part of it is, you know, it's not necessarily even their fault because I think it's a, the assumption there is that you're also in a, in a static, um, environment or environment but if you if you go into this with the assumption that the facts are changing all the time <laughs> um it starts to it it, it uh, you know it's 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 a tough pill to swallow if you've already invested half of your career in a trajectory I and mean, this is like why you know and suddenly that you know the second half of your career looks different because the whole landscape has totally changed um that is you know and that's that's less that's more true in some areas than others but um it's certainly an underlying uh, set of conditions, uh, which, you know, does, you know, it's, it's interesting because it, it forces the question of like, what is that experience, you know, experience isn't worth nothing, but it may be, it may mean something different, you know, if you had experience um, doing a sort of a different, um, having a different, uh, under different uh, circumstances, um, it, it's something that I think we increasingly need to work to um, think through. I mean, as you think about even the, and we're talking about how we're in, we're in a space now where there's, there's a lot of change and we're talking about three or four generations simultaneously working together. And, and so what does that even mean, right? Because <laughs> literally the person who's, who's coming out of school learned different things probably than someone two generations ago. Right. And so like, how do, how do they work together is an interesting question. Yeah. Bill writes, with so much information available online, uh, Jake is correct in saying that personalization is what's left for teachers to do, which which is a big ask, I think, of teachers. And again, it kind of goes back to that notion of scale. Yep. What's interesting about that and what it makes me think of, Bill, is this, this idea of, of the line and the relationship between education and employers and how there seems to be these two boundaries that are being shifted in terms of uh, that personalization of education. And Kevin, what you were mentioning earlier about geography we're no longer that tied to a, a specific geography. Yep. But those two things are, are going to change the students' expectations as they head into the workforce. And then employers are going to have to adapt to that as well. Do you think, Kevin, and knowing that we're kind of coming up to the top of the hour, so I, I apologize for if, I, if I'm taking a turn here, but um, do you, what do you see as uh, is our employers a leading or lagging indicator of education or vice versa? Um, I, it probably depends on what industry you're in. Yeah. Um, but I think that, um, and I think that there are some, there are some educational pursuits that are, that are pretty locked in for various reasons. So, you know, law, right, is a, is a path that is def that is defined by um, a whole other set of frameworks and precedents and government, right? Um, or let's say medicine, right? You know, where right. if you're going to, you know, if your eventual path is to become a surgeon, um, you know, that's a that's a very kind of narrow, deep um, set of set of expertise of skills and expertise that you would develop um, that is going to be less likely to kind of uh, you know, sway with, you know, um, the winds of change. Having said that, 
um, certainly in the, in the medical profession, I mean, the medical professions, professional, profession, professionals, excuse me, that I know, I mean, they all, they all have also have to regularly go back and get recertified in various mm-hmm. levels in order to just even remain relevant. I mean, they're, 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 they have to go back and do some continuous learning to maintain their credentials. And um, I think that, uh, and then on the, the, flip, the, the flip side, so there are some that are sort of like defined by those industries and they're kind of pretty locked in. I do think that there, there are other spaces where um, the learning is increasingly happening in a much uh, less traditional way and is likely being more driven by industry. So certainly if you think, look at the software world, uh, I think I mentioned it in the article, and it's, you know, sh- it should not go unnoticed that some of the biggest um, and most profitable companies in the world, these technology firms, so Apple and Google, and I think Facebook too, um, several of them, and just, in, just literally in the last couple of years, I mean, this is again prior to the whole pandemic situation, but have, have literally dropped their degree requirements, which is to say they've dropped the whole certification thing altogether. Now, that doesn't mean they're not selective in their hiring. That doesn't mean they're not looking for people with skills and uh, technical skills and critical thinking skills, et cetera. It just is to say that there's on some level, they're not sure that that, you know, that certification, that degree, that piece of paper with somebody's signature on it is the main litmus test as to whether or not um, they want to hire that person. What they're assuming, of course, is that they're hiring for something else. Um, they're hiring for, um, uh, you know, some technical skills and some thinking skills, et cetera. But they're also assuming that you're going to learn a lot by being dro- dropped into an environment that in all likelihood has a heavy duty, um, you know, philosophy and kind of way- methods for working and protocols and that they assume you're going to be dropped into a team that, that you're going to be, you know, they might be evaluating your ability to be a sponge as much as your, you know, what you're going to bring to the table in terms of like core set of uh, technical skills. So in that case, you can totally see how some industries may, may be taking an increasingly vital role in what it means to learn. Well, thank you everyone for joining us. Um, if you'd like to uh, stay in touch, uh, please do so. You can always shoot us an email at Kevin at People Design or Jake at People Design. Um, if you'd like to subscribe, we, we write these articles on a monthly basis and send them up and then follow up with these uh, webinars. So if you'd like to subscribe, uh, go to peopledesign.com, subscribe, and uh, you'll jump on there. Otherwise, you can listen to our past um, office hours at our, uh, our anchor page, which is uh, anchor.fm. Uh, forward slash uh, people design. So thank you very much, everyone, for joining us and have a great day. Thanks, all.